Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. You will, to uh, here in 1 John, but, but also in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter number 4. And we're going to kind of end the service this morning in Proverbs chapter 4. So in one sense, we'll work ourselves a little backwards. But 1 John, 1 John chapter 2 to begin with. We'll note these verses here that are found that we read just a moment ago, and they deal a lot with two words that are contrasted throughout the New Testament. These two words, of course, are darkness and light. In fact, the word darkness over the scope of the New Testament is mentioned over 102 times. And if you expand that to the reaches of the Old Testament, it exceeds many, many times for you'll even find about darkness and light and its first separation in a natural, though divinely created way in Genesis chapter 1 where God separated the darkness and the light. And there is a distinction there. But moving all the way into the New Testament, you'll find the idea of the word darkness mentioned 102 times. Um, And... uh, The word light is mentioned some 200 or 30 times throughout scriptures and another 76 times here in the New Testament. In our memory passage for this year, uh, we're looking at Matthew chapter number 5 and verses 13 and 14 this month, the next month through the next two verses. But in these passages, you have the, uh, the statement that ye are the light of the world. In chapter 5 and verse 16, we're commanded to let our light shine. And so throughout all of the scriptures, you find some reference to light and darkness. Take your eyes and move down here in 1 John chapter 2, and I want you to notice a phrase. A phrase that I would hope this morning would grasp our heart and mind as we consider the principles and distinctions of light and darkness. Look at verse number 8. He says, again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you. Why? Because the darkness is past, and the true light now shineth. I want to speak to you this morning on the thought, the darkness is past, and the true light now shineth. You know, as you consider this passage, you might think of light and darkness in the sense of a, uh, a day, you might think of it as a sense of when the, stri- uh, when the clock strikes 12 a.m. It is at least in our area of the country, dark. And then shortly thereafter, the sun begins to rise in the east and the light shineth. What does he mean, darkness and light? Is that what the beloved one is speaking of as he's under the inspiration of the word of God? Is it that God finds it necessary to instruct us in the daytime of the passing of time and the arrival of the sun? Is he teaching us meteorology? Is he teaching us about dusk and dawn? What is it that he says, darkness and light? As I mentioned a moment ago, it's throughout the New Testament. In fact, in John, um, turn over to John, if you will, for a moment. Just John chapter 1. I'll give you just a second to turn there. We could turn to all of these for our time's sake. I, I hope to give you the references and I'll read you the passages and you can follow through this. But it's mentioned so many times. What, what is he talking about? For instance, in John chapter 1, he says in verse 4, In him was life. If you go back to verse number 1, you'll find out who the him is. 
The Him is the one that was in the beginning, that was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is, of course, the pre-existent Christ, who is God and dwelt with God long before the creations of the heaven and earth that you and I now can consider. He says of him in verse number 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse number 5, And the light... And I would take notice here. Notice not all of these lights are capitalized. They're them in the lower case. He's not talking about a manifestation of the Godhead. He's talking about something distinct, but something that's associated with the Godhead. Notice verse 5. And the light shineth, same word, isn't it, in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. Hold there a moment. Let me make a statement. Does darkness really comprehend? Does darkness really think and consider? What does he mean, the darkness comprehendeth it not? Notice he continues in the following verses. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. Now you'll notice in verse number 6, or rather, in verse number 7, the same came for a witness. You'll note there that that is capitalized. Now he's talking about two different things. He went from talking about something in a general truth, the light, and now he's gone something that is capitalized. He's talking about a person, a proper light. In reference in verse number 7 and following, he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to say about him... Uh, that he, John the Baptist in context, was the he in verse 7. The he uh, was not that light, Jesus Christ, but was sent to bear witness of the light. That, Jesus Christ, was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. We could look at a number of other passages as we think, think on these. We, we could look in chapter 3 and verse number 19. You're still in John chapter 1. Look there. Uh, These are very familiar passages. John chapter 3. We're probably familiar with verse number 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But note, if you will, the following verses. He says in verse number 18, "Him, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Verse number 19. And this is the condemnation. That what? Same word, isn't it? Light is coming to the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Note, if you will, in verse 20. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light. Neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. So there's a distinction. What is this light and darkness? John writes of it in a sense of both as a thing and as a person. He writes of comprehending in darkness. He speaks of comprehending. That there is this darkness that can think and consider. There is this darkness that can have disdain for light. What is he referencing? We could move down through the course of Scripture in John chapter 8. 
The Lord Jesus spake in them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness. John chapter 8 is a marvelous chapter. Chapter 7 and chapter 8 are tethered together. In chapter 7 you find that the Lord Jesus was at the Feast of the Tabernacles. It was this feast by which all of the believers, uh, the believing Jews that is, were, and the Israelites as a whole, were commanded to build booths or tabernacles. Uh, they were commanded to build these and they would build them and they would go in as a time of joyous celebration. And each day they would have a water libation offering. And they would take and they had a, a golden vessel and they would go out to the pool of Siloam, uh, which was adjacent, you know, to the tabernacle. And they would dip this in there and with great horn blast and great, great bellowing of instruments and great cheer and singing throughout the entire feast of the tabernacles. They would take this water and they would take it around the altar and they rejoiced in it. And they rejoiced in it. And Jesus Christ in the midst of that feast of tabernacles cries out in chapter 7, I am the water of life. He that believeth in me, up from his midst shall come forth living water. He makes a parallel there. And then in the early parts of chapter 8, he goes into the wilderness to pray. And he comes back in, in the concluding portions of chapter 8. And he's there again, the feast of the tabernacles now in its last day. And there was something fantastic that happened on the last day of the feast of the tabernacles. They would take the spires of the temple. They would have four elevated lights. History tells us that so bright was the illumination of these lights that they reached into every neighboring courtyard in all the city of Jerusalem. They were magnificent. It was a game in some regards that they'd take little boys, you know, and they would scurry up those to light and to oil those lamps that were at the top. In the midst of the pinnacle of these final days, in chapter 8 and verse number 12, Jesus cried out, I am the light of the world. So in speaking of the person light, we know that this is none other than Jesus Christ. Throughout the New Testament it's mentioned, who is this non-persona of light? Who is this darkness? In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 we find, For God commanded the light to shine out of darkness. And has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Later in 2 Corinthians, just two chapters over, in verse number 14, he says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what, hath, what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? Paul in his epistle written to the first Thessalonians, to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Ye are the children of light and the children of the day. Ye are not of the night nor of darkness. In Romans chapter 13, saints are commanded to put on the armor of light. What is light and darkness? You hear in 1 John chapter 2. Let me give you some thoughts on this morning on that darkness passing and the light that shineth. And what I'd like to do over the next two weeks is I want to give you a description of what the light and darkness is this week. Next week I'd like to talk about, if the Lord will, will pray, how to walk in the light. Notice here in the text there seems to be some things that are inherently true about this light and darkness. Firstly, it seems that there is a definite characteristic or distinction of light and darkness. Here in this passage, the distinction is, is focused around love and hatred. Note the text in verse number 10 and 11. He that loveth his brother abideth in what? 
light. So one description, at least one, one in which is honed in by the Spirit of God here in 1 John chapter 2, when a description, if we were to say, describe this light that we're to walk in, describe this light that we're to now let shine in our life, one description of that, one qualification of it, is love. Adversely, if you move down to verse number 11, you get a description of darkness. He that hateth his brother is what? In darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness has blinded his eyes. So there are distinct characteristics that define what light and darkness is. So what this means, if there's distinct characteristics, there's no gray area. It's either darkness or light, love or hatred. Now, in our minds, we could, we could go somewhere with this. What if there's someone that we kind of love but kind of hate? That is how our mind likes to operate, isn't it? I would submit to you that person does not exist, and that hypothetical scenario does not exist. For to love, as is mentioned here in Scripture, is the very love of Christ. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his, for a stranger. Would you die? Probably not so. Maybe some, the scripture indicates. The fact is, if we're going to speak of loving someone, it isn't just a feeling of appreciation. It's the idea of giving yourself for them. So that hypothetical question of the person I kind of love but kind of hate. The answer to it is, would you be willing to sacrifice your all for them? And if the answer to that question is no, then biblically, you don't love that person. Quite interestingly also, I would note that a genuine test of love if you want to see how far love will go, look not upon someone that you're supposed to love, but rather on how much you love yourself. Ephesians chapter 5, in talking about the marital role in husbands loving your wives, an interesting statement is made. For no man ever yet hateth him own self. There are definite distinctions therefore quantifying what light is and what darkness is. A second thing that I'd like to remind you here in this passage regarding light and darkness is there seems to be the fact, verse number 8 and 9 and following, that everyone begins with darkness. Note the phrase there, because the darkness is past. Whate'er this darkness is, it was something that gathered upon the hearts of individuals and societies first and preeminent. Otherwise, the opposite would be true. And he would say that the light shined and now darkness exists. But the layout of the passage, the darkness is past, indicates that the first experience that you and I would have as it pertains to light and darkness, because we're told to put on light, to be in light, to walk in light, to not walk in darkness lets me know that the first place that I begin in life is darkness. A third thing that I would tell you is this. It seems that there is only one cure to eviscerate 
darkness from our life. And that is the light that lighteth every man's path. Now who is that light? That's Jesus Christ. Just as he did so in the chapter 8 of John and 12th verse, I am the light of the world. That is the only cure that will take man out of his inherent innate state of darkness. Out of that state that stands as a constant distinction from God and all of his holiness. The only thing that can allow me to converse, to have a relationship with light, is if light then overcomes darkness. The fourth element that seems to be related to us in these passages is this. That there is a possibility. There is a way in which one can walk in darkness. Or rather, there is a possibility in which one can walk in light. Just as in reality, they once walked in darkness. Think about that for a moment. We talk about this darkness passing and that everyone starts there. And there are some habits, mindsets, words, etc. that we have battled against or engaged in all of our life. And we would say that that reaction or that speech or that interaction is natural. We might would even put it this way. It's just who I am. Well, what were you first? Darkness. So the revelation of what just comes to mind is a revelation of what you once were. But it seems in context when he's commanding you to allow the light to shine, Matthew chapter 5, be the light of the world, that if we're going to confess Jesus Christ as our Savior, if we're going to believe in him, and we're going to walk in Him, then that is to walk contrary to what is just who we are. Notice over in chapter 1, he uses this as well. Note verse 5. He said, Then this is the message which you have heard of Him, and declare unto you that God is light. And in reference to God being light, he says, And in Him is no what? Darkness. Ergo, in verse number 6, he says, if we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, that's to walk like we used to walk. He goes on, he says, we lie and do not the truth. Why? How can we have fellowship with light if we're not walking in light? They're distinct. How can we say that we have fellowship with God who is light if we're advancing darkness? In their life. But the glorious truth is there is some power available that will allow, note verse number eight, the darkness is past. That's a fantastic word. It denotes two very similar things at the same time. It denotes number one, as I mentioned before, that that was the state of all of us. And in that sense, it is past now because we know light. But it also says this, that the grabbing or the holding of the maintaining of light, it shineth and continues to shine, but there is a proclivity in our life to retreat or revert back to the state quite easily. 
What is this light? What is this darkness? I think throughout the New Testament, you'll find two ways in which this spiritual light is manifested. Let me give them to you. Number one, it is manifested intellectually. It is manifested intellectually. In that sense, we're talking about truth as opposed to error. Light in the scriptures is, and really I should turn that phrase around, truth in the scriptures is portrayed as light. Think of the 119th Psalm and the 105th verse. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. We might would even mention one of the verses we'll be memorizing this year. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he, he talks about the preaching of the gospel, the world that is around us. In 2 Corinthians chapter number 4 and verse number 4, he talks about the God of this world has blinded the hearts of those, and he speaks of his, that they may not see the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ? Is that not the truth of Christ as well? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In that sense, when you look at light throughout the New Testament, particular whether it's in, uh, in John or whether it's in Ephesians or whether it's in Romans or whether it's in the epistle of 1 John that we're in this morning, the fact remains that what light really is in its essence, one way to stipulate it is that light has a level of inter, uh, intelligence to it. There is something that you can know, you can apprehend, something that you can put your concrete faith and trust in. And what is it? It's God's truths. It's the truth revealed through the Word of God. It's the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the truth of the knowledge of the Godhead mightily. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he talks about that we can know the mind of Christ. I may not know all of His sovereign will. Some of His will may be hidden, prophetically especially, from me. But the truth is, I can know enough about God through what He has revealed in Scriptures that He has a desire for me. And the first part of the will of God in the life of every individual is that they come to the saving knowledge of the truth. Light is portrayed as truth. There is an intellectual quality to it. There seems to be a second thing throughout the New Testament about light. And that is, there seems to be a morality attached to it. Well, that would go with truth, wasn't it? It's revealed here in this passage. If I say I'm in light, I ought to love. So in essence, love could be seen also as a type of light. Not love only, but love certainly would be one of those qualifications. There's a level, if truth is intellectual, well, I would say here in this second part that there's a level of morality as it relates to holiness. If I have and espouse the truths of God's Word, my heart is illuminated. And one of the telltale signs that my heart is illuminated is that my life will be transformed. Now, you think of Romans chapter 13, we were sat a moment ago. Put on the armor of light. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14 we read to you. What concord? As Christ with Belial. What association, if you will, has or communion, light and darkness? 
Notice, if you will, Ephesians chapter 5. I won't get bogged down here because we'll save that for next week. But look at Ephesians chapter 5. He describes light with three broad things. And it kind of fit right here into this. Intellectual in one sense, morality in another one. He says, for ye were sometimes darkness. I'll speak in greater detail about this. But that word sometimes means in times past. It isn't the idea that you were in and out before you came to the saving knowledge of Christ. No, it's the idea that there was a time past, some time ago, that you were submerged into darkness. He said, but now are ye the light, now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And he goes down there in verse number 9, and he's, you'll see the parentheses. He's going to qualify the statement of walking as a children of light, what light looks like in the life of an individual that has received the light of salvation. And he mentions three things, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. You might even put it this way. Goodness is what a man sees of me. You know, sometimes folks, especially in today's age, get this idea that it's just so hard to know any truth. It's so hard to know how a Christian ought to behave, ought to act, ought to think, ought to dress, what they ought to do. It's just too difficult to really know because times have changed. I submit to you that if you're ever in need of an honest, unbiased opinion of what a Christian's supposed to be, just ask someone in darkness. They'll be able to let you know. Innately, inherently, one without Christ knows a Christian ought to have a higher level of morality. Shouldn't lie, shouldn't, shouldn't, shouldn't steal, shouldn't cheat. The way man looks at someone that's walking in light, they look at him through his goodness. That's how man sees it. Why? Because it's inherently adverse to evil. It's different. Those in darkness say, put yourself first. Those in darkness say, and justify the means. Those in darkness says, do whatever you need to do to get ahead. Those in light say, well, what does God say? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to thee. What does it mean when I speak of morality? Well, the morality of light that's expressed here in Ephesians is goodness, how man sees you. But it's also expressed in righteousness. And in a broad sense, righteousness is how God sees you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, and I've attempted to recite it often, because it's the hope of every hope that you can possibly have. For while we were yet sins, uh, uh, rather, uh, he speaks about being clothed. He said uh, that he became sin for us that knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If you're in Christ Jesus this evening, or rather this morning, you know for sure you have believed the gospel and obeyed it. You want to know how God looks at you? 
He sees the mirrored righteousness of His Son. What is God's perspective of those that are in light? His own righteousness. And then there's a third element of this love found here. I speak of the morality. He speaks of this. You walk in truth. Inwardly. Now when I think of truth, and we take consideration, they talk about one of the greatest deceptions is self-deception. James talks about the Word of God, that there are those that look into the perfect law of God and seeeth and behold what manner of man they do. And then what do they do? They forget. Peter, over and over again in the epistles, the general epistles that he, that he penned under inspiration, talks about remembering, 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 remembering. My, there seems to be a third vision, if you will, a third look at light, and it is inward. A constant need to reaffirm in my heart that I espouse the truths of the God of light that he has given. I am to think like God wants me to think. I am to behave like God wants me to behave. I am to plan and prepare and organize and prioritize my life like God would have me do. That's truth. That's an interesting thing. We were speaking at prayer breakfast yesterday. How do you get Christians to do what Christians are supposed to do? I guess you could invent a place called purgatory and tell them that if you don't do such and such, I'm going to put you there. And this imaginary, unbiblical place that does not exist. Or what's the other one? Limbo. You invent limbo and let them float around for eternity. How do you do that? See, see, the greatest battle that a Christian faces once the darkness is past and there's the indwelling of the light of God's Word, the greatest battle, the most difficult battle, is a personal, continual encounter with truth. Not making their decisions with the logic of the past. Not saying, well, this is the way I think you should do it. Well, it's all well and good, but... What is it that God wants done? So the third way in which must be looked at when we speak of light, there must be this inherent responsibility of man to gaze upon the truth of the light as applicable to himself. Light is intellectual. Light is referenced as morality. But yet that's only one half of the equation. He speaks over in 1 John, this darkness that was past. Who or what? What is this darkness that exists? Let me give you a couple of things about the darkness. Number one, we're revealed in scriptures that darkness is ultimately the work of Satan. In John chapter 8, that same passage where the Lord cried in verse 12, I am the light of the world. In verse 44, it said of this, he's talking about Satan, was a murderer from the beginning. Yes, it was man that is deceived, mankind that is deceived and rebelled, and therefore through him sin entered the world, and death passed upon all men. But who was the instigator that was present? Little boy, I had some friends, and invariably we would do something to displease the authorities. Not the police, I'm talking about parents and teachers. And it would always be one or two of us that did something. But always behind the veil, 
And sometimes it was a different person. They were the instigator. They provided the means for trouble to occur. They poked and they prodded. And the curiosity, uh, the curiosity of our heart got the best of us. I can, I'll never forget this long as the Lord allows me to retain my mind. But I remember one day, every boy, and I, I went to a school where they paddled you. And uh, she, the teacher had uh, a paint stick that she had wrapped in tape. And so you'd stick out your hand and swat that hand. I remember one day, I must be kindergarten, first grade. There's about 25 of us in the class, about 14, 15 boys. Every one of us got paddled at the same time. I won't. She made us all stick out, lined us up like we were on a firing line and went down and swatted one to the next. And then whoever, you didn't want to be on the ends. They got it twice back to back. You want to be in the middle. Go down to the end, swat that one again. She'd work her way back down, swatted. We all got paddled at the same time. Now, I, I know that's probably what's wrong with me. And society's better off because we don't do that, right? Right? You say, oh, me, that's the opposite. But you would ask, why did that happen? Well, somebody got the idea of doing something. We decided to climb the walls in the bathroom. And I'll leave it at that. None of the girls thought that was a good idea. I imagine what those girls thought as they got brought back to the room. Or all the boys? Stupid heads. <laughs> they, they'd have been pretty right about all that. So you see, my analogy here, yes, it was mankind that bears the blame. Sin of the world. He made a personal individual decision to reject God's authority. Do not do this, God said. You may do all of this. And isn't it true? But see, they, Adam and Eve, had the same problem you and I do. We look at God's command and say, oh, so restrictive. He made a whole garden. And all the animals that dwell in the garden. And you're the keeper of the whole garden. <clears throat> and he gave you a companion. I speak of his spouse. Wife. And he gave you communion in the cool of the evening. And simply put, he said there is just this one thing that you're not to do. And in that perfect sense of innocence, in comes Lucifer. God describes him in John chapter 8, a murderer from the beginning. What does he challenge him with? Hath God said? Truly you want this. You know his game plan hasn't changed at all. He still deals with the magnificent trio of darkness. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. Pride of life. By the way you find that in the text of scripture we're in. Still operating the same way. Still provoking, still tempting, still prodding. At its essence, darkness refers to the diabolical evil work of Satan. In Ephesians chapter number 6, he talks about principalities and rulers of darkness in high place. This evil one is still at work, poking, prodding, blinding, and tempting today. So if you're going to speak about who the head of darkness is, it's the evil one. 
Secondly, about this darkness, we could talk about what it refers to in the sense that all unbelievers fulfill the will of the evil one. They may not even be cognizant of it. They walk in darkness and they go along to get along. Maybe rejecting the word of God. <coughs> Excuse me. Maybe rejecting the word of God as being nothing more than a fairy tale. Pushing it aside. Chasing every desire of the heart. You know who's steering that thought? The godless evil one. In 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he talks about blinding the eyes of them that are lost. Every unbeliever is fulfilling somebody else's will. In this case, it's the evil one. In Luke 22, it's referred to as the power of darkness. In Ephesians chapter 6, it's referred to as the principalities of darkness of evil. In chapter 5 and verse 19 of Ephesians, the whole world is in darkness. So when we speak of darkness, it's originated in one sense by the provocateur, the evil one. All unbelievers dwell in this place, fulfilling the evil that is propagated. A fourth thing to note about darkness is this. Because it is in darkness, it follows evil that is contrary to light. It brings about a fourth thing, or a third thing rather, and that is this, that all those who are in darkness are under God's penalty. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 6 talks about them being under the wrath of God. What a terrible thing. I've related this now, two or three services about this. My heart's so troubled about this. So frightened about it. A couple weeks ago, I was out. It was on a Monday night, and as I was leaving the home, they turned on a football game, and it was the game where Cincinnati and Buffalo were playing over in Cincinnati, and a defensive back for Buffalo tackled a fella, and he fell down, got up, just fell down. They wound up giving him shock in his heart, doing CPR and chest compressions, and thankfully, he's been discharged from the hospital. But what fell out afterwards is what really troubled my heart. People that walk in darkness saying, well, we believe prayer changes things. And they reminded me in one sense of those that Paul encountered in Athens. Almost that they're going to cover all their bases, not even knowing the God to whom they pray. Oh, they might know a name generic. They might know a person at distance. But they live their life as though nothing matters, and that somehow I can address the high God of heaven and say, God, intervene on this behalf. And they don't know that God. And what saddens me is many of these same individuals may not even know they're under the wrath of God. At best, they have believed a different gospel. No, I'm not saying everybody that played for that fellow wasn't saved. But I think we'd be confused if we didn't think there was a host of people that could care less about anything of God that joined in a great ushering choir of people that sang, let's pray. I'm glad the guy was discharged for hospital. I praise the Lord for it. But I'm saying there's a host of people that are saying, let's pray, let's pray, let's pray. And yet they don't know the God of light. 
And yes, exactly what they're doing is what they, they need to pray. But it's not a prayer of healing. They need a prayer of salvation because they are under God's wrath. And if they were to die, they would go into eternity without Jesus Christ and be damned forever. Why? They're in darkness even unto now. I believe it's Ephesians chapter 2. He says, by whose nature ye are the children of wrath. That's a hard thing for me to consider. I've met some very good moral people in my life. I've met some agnostics. I don't believe in the scriptures. I've met some atheists that were good people in a sense. I mean, they had a level of refinement. I, a, a guy's in my mind right now I'm thinking about. Did not swear. Would not swear because it was crass. That's what he would tell you. Worked together for a number of years. Impeccable dresser. Fully modest. Had a sense of decorum. I watched him one day, almost broke into tears. He got all upset because he had miscounted uh, the, the change register. And he was a dollar off and he was afraid they thought he stole it. Had a lot of people I know that look at that and say, well, it's a buck, who cares? He cared because it wasn't his. He had a strong sense of morality. But if we were to speak of the gospel, he didn't care for it. On the other hand, I've met another Christians. The Bible reveals some of them that are about as boneheaded as they come. They seem to have no sense of decency, no sense of their word, vengeful, bitter. Why, I think old Lot might think of Samson sometimes. Certainly Demas comes to mind. And yet they're in Christ. My, I would hearken back to realizing that there is nothing an individual can do to remove them out of the state of being under the wrath of God. It's only faith through Jesus Christ having commended His love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. A final thought about darkness, and I've already alluded to it quite clearly. Those that reside under the wrath of God under the minion of the evil one, fulfilling his will and acting their hopes and dreams upon that, they have the same results. They have a destiny of eternal darkness. Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, I think it is, he talks about them being cast into total darkness where there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's hard language, isn't it? But note 1 John chapter 2 and verse 8. Because the darkness is past. I will leave you with a fifth thought. Darkness does not have to triumph. It does not have to triumph in a society. They can come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. But most importantly, darkness does not have to triumph in the life of an individual. No one's going to be able to come before the presence of a thrice holy God and say, wow, I just didn't know these things. He's going to point to the nature he's created. As a young man, the ozone was such a big thing. You, oh, it's everywhere. The hole in the ozone, the hole in the ozone. People took more care about the hole in the ozone. I read an article this week and they said, the ozone's fine. It healed itself. It's great. We can go back to using hairspray. Well, I can't, but 
congressman from New Jersey this week put forth legislation to investigate why all these whales are beaching themselves on the Jersey Shore. Things that might have to do with um, environmental change, things that are being done in the sea, and that's what he wants to investigate. People on the other side of the party are wanting to investigate your gas stoves to see if they might be killing you when you get home. People got all kind of concerns, some legitimate, some less so. But those are not the concerns of scriptures. For it'd be better for a man to be broke and died using a poor old gas stove, eating rotted well meat, and enter into heaven in the light of Jesus Christ. Then it would for a man to fare sumptuous, have all the answers to all of society or think that he does, to be educated so that the degrees that would follow to initialize behind his name uh, were in greater number than those that were found on the thermometer, and for him to enter, knowing not the God of heaven. It, that is darkness, does not have to remain. It does not in a sense of salvation. I would call that intellectual in one sense, though salvation is certainly by faith. But it does not in the life of Christian have to remain. That darkness by which God has saved you out, you and I must be transformed into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ. There ought to be a difference. I had you turn to Proverbs chapter 4. Notice, if you will, in verse number 14. He says, Enter not into the path of the wicked. And go not. Solomon is writing this to his son. His son that has been reared to understand the true and living God of Israel. Son that's no doubt heard the stories of the granddad who had a heart after the things of God. I speak of David. A son that early on was taught and no doubt instructed in the things of God like Timothy was, where the scripture says of Timothy that from a child thou hast known the scriptures. He knew all this. One day that child's going to become a man. He's going to inherit a kingdom. He's going to go on and make decisions in life. And Solomon leaving with some dark sayings that if this young fellow would consider through the wisdom that only God can give, he can course correct his life and know the peace and safety and joy that our salvation brings, not only in the life that is to come, but in the life that we now experience right now. He writes these words, he tells them, enter not into the path of the wicked. Go not, my son, in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Pass not by it. Turn from it. Pass away. If I could interject, let the darkness pass, son. Aspire not to the things that the world aspires to. Love not this world, neither the things that are in the world. Embrace not yourself with all those that say, Come, join together. If sinners entice thee, my son, consent thou not. Do not these things. Live in the light, son. Live not in the darkness. Don't be tricked in, 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 in naivety. Embrace that which God has condemned. Let it pass by. For they sleep not. These wicked. They sleep not except they have done mischief. Their sleep is taken away unless they fall. Calls rather some to fall. They're under darkness. 
And they're fulfilling whether they know it or not. Rather, they're the instigator or the initiator. Wickedness to occur. He said, for they eat the bread of wickedness. Drink the wine of violence. One of the greatest conjunctions. But there's an alternate choice, son. Walking in light. The path of the just. What is it? A shining light. And what does it do? It shineth more and more unto the perfect day. Oh, my soul. The lightness is past in its transformative essence. But as I have received the light of the glory of God, there's more darkness in my life that God constantly, as I invest my all in Him that begins to fall away. That's what He means. It shineth more and more. Look at verse 19. The way of the wicked is as a darkness. They knoweth not at what they stumble. And he speaks of a promise of deliverance, of hope. And it comes by walking in Jesus Christ and walking in the commands of Jesus Christ. The darkness is in our paths. And it is passing further into the distance with each passing day. The light of Christ is to shine more and more as those days pass. May God help us as our theme will be this year to carry and keep the light of the truths of the Word of God each day. As Philippians 2 says that we may shine as lights. That is to reflect His glory in a crooked and perverse generation in this world. The darkness is past and that true light now shines. Let's stand to our feet. Father, Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.